Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We turn to the book of Ephesians, please. And to chapter 2. We're reading from verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, and the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God. Amen. We're stopping there. Just for now. Paul has been reminding us, if you cast your mind back away about a month back, when we last looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul has been reminding us that every believer was once dead in their trespasses, their willful rebellion against God, dead in their sins in falling short of God's perfection. And the purpose of writing this letter is for to explain to Christian believers just how great, how vast is the work that God in Christ has done for us, saving us. So in order to help us to understand that, he's going to go back a step and remind Christian believers what they were like before they met the Saviour. And he talks about the problem with people. And the problem is the dreadful, stinking, polluted, corrupt nature into which and with which we are born. So tonight I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about pollution. Not the common kind of pollution that you hear talked about on the news. You know where they talk about how the world is going to end in two years if we don't stop burning coal. That kind of pollution. Not that. I wonder, have you ever been to Cornwall? I've never been. But I feel like I've been. Because I've watched Doc Martin. And it's set in Cornwall. And if you see the place where Doc Martin lives, well, it doesn't really live, of course, but you know what I mean. The place where he's supposed to live is this lovely wee inlet, a lovely wee bay in a beautiful village. And I'm told that Cornwall is scattered with lovely scenery and beautiful villages like that. Uh, someday I'm going to go there and look at it. But I've been warned that if you go to Cornwall, the one thing you must not do is take a dip in the sea. 
because apparently the local water company pumps raw sewage out into the sea. And it's polluted. And if you go there at the wrong time and you go into the water, you can actually suffer some very serious adverse health effects. Pollution is bad for your health. The point I'm going to try and make this evening is that pollution is bad for the soul. And I want you to see the spread of this pollution and the stench of the pollution, the seriousness of the pollution. I'm talking about the pollution of the human soul. So let's stick with our text and make sure that we don't stray from it. And we're looking at chapter 2, verse 2, down to the first two words of verse 4. We're going to see the spread of the pollution, because when we looked at chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13, we noticed Paul using a literary device, a duality. Let's look at it again, just to get it straight in our minds. Chapter 1 and verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. He's talking about we trusted Christ and you trusted Christ. He's talking about how the Jewish Christians were the first to put their trust in the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. And then the Gentile Christians living in Ephesus and other churches throughout the Gentile world also trusted Christ as their Saviour and their Lord. So these people were from different backgrounds, different religious traditions, different views of morality and ethics, and yet they are united in Christ. They had all, at one point, responded to God's grace by trusting the Saviour. Now he's using a similar literary tactic here in verse 2 and 3. He's talking about you and we. Verse 2, ye walked. Verse 3, we all. He's talking about all of us, not just Gentiles, but Jews. And remember, the Jews of that age basically saw the world in a two-dimensional fashion. You were either a Jew or a Gentile. The Jews were different. They thought that everyone else, and yet Paul is saying here that the reason why Jews and Gentiles both needed to trust Christ is because both groups, Jews and Gentiles, are by nature and practice sinners. There will be no Jews in heaven without Jesus. Just like there will be no Gentiles in heaven without Jesus. So we're all sinners. That's how widespread the problem is, this sinful pollution of the heart. We're all sinners, and that raises serious questions for modern mankind. What is the reason behind the crime and the violence in this world? Why are people being abused? Why are people so cruel? What's going on? We need to get some idea of what's driving this world in the way that it's going. John Blanchard, writing in the book Truth for Life, gave an illustration. He recalled a newspaper 
editorial in the Times where the editorial asked the question, what on earth is wrong with this world today? It's a question we could ask over and over. We see some of the things that are happening. A few days later, a letter appeared in the letters column. It was from G.K. Chesterton, the author. And he wrote in response to the editorial, Sir, I am yours, etc., Chesterton. What's wrong with the world today? It's me. And Paul agrees. These Gentiles are guilty sinners. In time past ye walked according to the course of this world. The Jews are guilty sinners, among whom we all had our conversation in time past. Religious people are guilty sinners because Paul's obviously including himself in that when he talks about the Jews having been guilty sinners in the sight of God. He was himself a Jew a man who had been a highly devout, practicing, religious man in the Jewish religion. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, he's able to boast about this. And he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He talks about being an Hebrew of the Hebrews. He talks about touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, blameless before the, in the eyes of his fellow co-religionists, but in God's eyes a sinner, the chief of sinners, just like everyone else, proof that religion cannot save. It's simply further increases the pollution of the soul. So the first principle we have established is that this pollution is widespread. It is universal. It is ubiquitous. Everyone that's born into this world is polluted by sin. And then we see the stench of this pollution because this is rising into the nostrils of God as a dreadful stench, the stench of sin. How stinking it is. The debris that it leaves in human lives, the result of our human sinfulness. It's actually hard to describe the rotten putrefaction that lies in the human heart. The prophet Jeremiah described it. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, he tells us there that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Isn't it just? Let's go back to our text in verse 2. And Paul here makes a list of the wickednesses, the nefarious underlying influences that are at work in this world and which are governing and directing the motives and the morals and the principles and the philosophies of those who are living in accordance with their sin-polluted lives. I've got four of them. The first one is compliance. In verse 2, Paul says we're in In time past ye walked according to the course of this world. 
Life is lived by and large, is it not, in modern days and in Paul's day, I suppose, too, in compliance with the values and the standards of the world. And that's often determined by the people who have the loudest voices. Let me give you an an illustration of that. Why on earth does the transsexual lobby have such a huge influence on this modern age? Why are they so afraid of them? They represent a tiny, tiny, minute minority. And yet they have infiltrated into society so far that to criticise them or even to critique their ideas and beliefs fairly is to invite, at the very best, cancellation. Maybe sometimes, at worst, even violent reprisal. So people simply comply. It is easier in our sin-polluted world just to simply go along to get along, just to simply let people live their lives and think nothing of it and never speak up. Compliance, ye walked according to the course of this world. Whatever way the world's going, anything for a bit of peace and quiet. And then there's conflict. Move on down the verse. Because they live according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. There's no peace in the Christless heart. There's always a conflict taking place. A conflict in this world and within the people who live in it. A conflict going on in our hearts. Paul summarizes it here in two ways. He talks about active obedience to Satan. You're living according to the prince of the power of the air. That phrase, the prince of the power of the air, is an intriguing description of the enemy, isn't it? The adversary. The ruler of the kingdom of darkness. Paul's writing to Greek Gentile Christians who are now believers in Christ, but who once were pagans, once were filled with superstition about good and about evil and about the spiritual forces that war in this world. And the Greeks of that age believed that the atmosphere around us The air that we breathe is polluted with spiritual forces, with spirit beings, all vying for space in the air. And I know that there are certainly such things as demonic forces, but Paul here is correcting their previous pagan superstition by teaching them and teaching us that there is a benign force, a prince, a personality, a ruler of the kingdoms of darkness who is manipulating evil in this world, who is strategically attacking the church and attacking God and attacking Christ and attacking everything that is true and good and moral and upright, whose ends are destruction. And the sin-polluted soul is knowingly or unknowingly living in obedience to that prince of the power of the air. 
1 John 5 and 19. John writes, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Isn't that true? I suppose one of the most obvious illustrations of the satanic influence in the governance of this present age is seen in the conduct of the politicians and rulers who govern over us, isn't it? The establishment figures who are directing events at this present time. Last week, beginning of the week, I watched a monologue by Neil Oliver in which he pleaded with politicians to simply stop telling lies. Would you just stop lying? We know what you're doing. We know what you're up to. We know that you're lying. You know that they're lying. You know that we're, we know that you're lying. Why don't you just stop lying and tell us the truth? It'd be better for everybody, wouldn't it? They lie about everything. They lie about gender. They lie about sexuality. They lie about abortion. They lie about war. Didn't they lie? And they sent millions of people to their death in Iraq because of Saddam Hussein's alleged weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist. Didn't they lie? Stood up in Parliament and deliberately told lies. They lie about the economy. They lie about the peace process, so-called. Last week, I don't know if... I hope you've put it out of your mind, so... But last week there was a conference here in Belfast to Queen's University to mark the 25th anniversary of the so-called Good Friday Agreement. It was a gathering of the great and the good, the elites from all around the world. All the globalist leaders were there. Those that mattered, those that had allegedly taken part in that event 25 years ago and in a speech by the current Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Mr. Heaton Harris he talked about the contribution for peace that was made by Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness a contribution for peace the same men who would have happily a few years before that, the same men who would have put a bullet in Mr. Heaton Harris's back without a second thought the same men who blew up the, the Brighton Hotel where the Conservative Party were holding their conference. The same men who murdered Ernie Neve on the way into conference and the way into Parliament. In the very same speech, he held up those men responsible for the deaths and the injuries and the mutilations and the tortures and the all orphans and he praised them for almost stopping their criminal activities. And in the very same speech, Mr. Harris then said, Lord Trimble and the PUP's David Irvine, quoting from the newsletter, led not only their own parties but unionism in saying yes to peace. So, wait a minute, the people who were the object of a 30-year-long vicious campaign by terrorists 
people who were hounded out of their farms and homesteads around the border, people like myself who lived in a a house with my mum and dad up until I was the age of about 14 or 15, till we had to get out before we were burned out by the IRA. People who were appalled whenever members of their own communities, their own people committed acts of violence and lifted the phone and reported them to the police, as we know for ourselves. The largely law-abiding population, Protestants and Catholics, had to be led to peace while Adams and McGuinness were hailed as being the peacemakers. Really. Well, that appalling rewriting of of history is a lie. That's what it is. That's a man standing in the public square and openly lying. Now, why do they do that? Why do the people who govern us use lies as a weapon against us? Here's why. Because in their sin-polluted world, they are actively obedient to their father, the devil, who is the father of all lies. Jesus said so. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do, for he is a liar and the father of it. They're actively working for a satanic agenda. But there's another side to that coin. They are actively disobedient to God. Because these people, if you look back at our text, not only are they walking according to the prince of the power of the air, but they are the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Who are they disobedient to? They are disobedient to God. They are obeying their father, the devil, the father of lies, but they are in active rebellion, disobedience against God. And even when the sin-polluted mind knows that there is a God, knows that there is a creator, and even when they are aware of the eternal consequences of their sinful rebellion, they persist in their refusal to acknowledge the rightful claims of their creator over their lives. Now, that's a conflict. Can't you see it in every life? Every life in this world, everyone that's born, There is this conflict going on. They know that there is a God who created them. Romans 1 tells us that. And yet willfully they rebel against him and they obey their father, the devil. And this prince of the power of the air is at work within them, using them as his weapons in his struggle against God. So, let's continue. We have the stench of the pollution, the compliance and the conflict and the conduct. We all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. Verse 3, the word conversation here, you don't think of that as just being speech. That's our way of life. That's how we conduct ourselves. That's what directs our actions and our thoughts. That motivation is me. It's what I want. You'll hear people saying today, follow your heart. 
Don't follow it. Your heart is sinful. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart is desperately wicked to live how it pleases me, regardless of the divine order of things or to regardless of the divine uh, of the law of God. It's our conduct. We have our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. And then we have our cravings, among whom also fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul making sure that we know here that these lusts of the flesh begin in our mind. And we would often think of that as a reference to the common sexual degradation that persists in this sin-polluted society. It's not just that. In Galatians 5, Paul lists the desires of the flesh. Verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. We can see them. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, Wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So here we have in these couple of verses, verse 2 and 3, a graphic description of the state of the ungodly, polluted soul. A life of compliance with the philosophies of this world. A life of conflict, siding with the devil and his forces against God. A life of sinful, willful pleasure. Let's look at the seriousness of this pollution. Just at the end of verse 3, we have a little phrase. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Oh dear. The first step to get this matter dealt with is to recognize the true state of our souls. I've tried my best to let you understand, as Paul did here, I try to get you to understand how deep and how awful is the state of man outside of Christ. How polluted is the human soul. But let's look at the consequences of that. This dreadful position is ours by nature. It is not something that we learn. It's not a result of a lack of education. It's not a result of financial deprivation. Some of the wealthiest people in this present age are among the most wicked. It is our human condition from before we were born. We are, by nature, sinners from the moment of conception. King David said in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? And we are children of wrath. Just like Christians are in status, children of God. In our ungodly state, we are 
in status, the children of wrath. We are under sentence of death because of our sins. Ezekiel 18 and 20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6 and 23, that familiar verse, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a very just sentence. When we stand before God in judgment day, no one will be able to complain. We'll be confronted by the holiness and the purity of God and we'll be standing in dock and we'll be ashamed in our own sinfulness and no one can utter a word. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And that condemnation is already ours. We're not free of guilt right now. Jesus warned his disciples in John 3 and verse 18 that he that believeth not in him is condemned already. Without Christ, we are the children of wrath. and The wrath of God is upon us. Don't be thinking of God's wrath as a fit of temper. A week ago, I took a memory card out of a camera and I set it down momentarily on the little table that the TV sits on. You know, a little low table. I set it down, I turned my back and when I looked back, the dog had taken it and had chewed it into tiny smithereens. You could have heard me a fart, you could have heard me a mile away, shouting at the dog and roaring, telling it to get to its bed, behave itself, and not to come out the rest of the day. It was out within 15 minutes, believe you me, begging for a biscuit. Lost the temper with it. Only lasted a few minutes, but even so, the dog knew fine rightly it had done wrong. God's temper is not like God's wrath is not like my temper. His wrath is righteous anger with the rebellion of his created beings. Romans 1 and 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Seriousness of that pollution is very great. Because by nature, we are the children of wrath. And we're under the condemnation of God even before we stand before him. It's a hopeless situation. Except for verse 4. But God. But God. God intervened. There's hope. Paul begins his next verse with just two words that change absolutely everything. These words are pivotal. We are sinners. We deserve to be punished. We deserve eternal death. But God, God has intervened on our behalf. In his great love for us, he has initiated a rescue plan. He gave his only begotten son for us at the cross and all of that filth all of that stench all of that 
pollution, all of that putridness that lies in the depths of the human heart was placed on God's own sinless Son who took it upon himself at the cross and bore our hell, our punishment on that day for us. That's how seriously God takes our human condition, the sinful pollution of the soul, and we should take it seriously too. And we should examine our hearts and confess our sins and trust the Saviour who died for us on the cross. Why would he do that? For sinners like us. Why would he send his own son to die for such wretched, filthy, hell-deserving sinners? Next week, God willing, we'll look at why God did that. And we'll see how rich is his mercy. How great is his love. And how immeasurable is his kindness. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.